and well met, travelers, and welcome to the Kinky Tavern. Pull up a stool. What do you have to drink? Here, we're going to talk about different aspects of kink, leather, the BDSM community, relationships within it, and so much more. All opinions voiced in this podcast are just that, opinions, and they should not be taken as fact or medical advice. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoy. If you want to help us improve more, you can actually sign up for our Patreon and donate to that Mm -hmm. at the Kinky Tavern. Um, And you can send us questions or suggestions to any of the following. Yes. We're at the Kinky Tavern on Patreon, Twitter, Instagram, and FetLife. And that's all one word, the Kinky Tavern. We are also separately on FetLife at MDizzy, E-M-D-I-Z-Z-Y. And I am at pup underscore Merlin underscore Wrecker, R-E-K-K-R. You can also join our Discord through our link tree or through um, messaging us and we'll send you a link. Yes. We'd love to have you engage with us and help us make this the best place to learn about kink. Yeah, and you can find us also on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor FM, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Cast, and Radio Public. Almost all the places. The content that we discuss will likely be explicit. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Mix Dizzy. And I'm Pup Breaker. And today with the Kinky Tavern, we are going to be talking to you about Queer History Part 2. Part 2. Of Infinity. Yes. We have been doing some research for Queer History for Pride Month, and we are going to be releasing something that is Pride-themed every week this month. And probably a lot more than that, because there's a lot. Yeah. And we're gay, so every every week has queered content. <laughs> Yeah. So I think last time we left off, um, we started in 1600 or something like that and ended in 1930 with the Hays Code. Mm-hmm. And that was like the motion picture code in which like what was allowed in film and all that fun stuff. And actually it brought along like what people see as gay and queer stereotypes in uh, film and media. Things like the effeminate male villain or some of the other ones. The butch, butch lesbian. yeah. Which those. I will admit, some of those old time movies with the lady in a suit that's all... There's like one specific video I'm thinking of and I don't know what movie it's from. There's like a lady in a suit and she's all dapper and has a big old top hat and she's just hot <laughs> and comes up to the femme married assumingly person with a group of men around her and flirts with her and then gives her a kiss and walks away and oh well the worst part about that is that all the men just laugh yeah that's yeah that did bother me but yeah um as far as like hotness scale i'm sorry but yeah the the haste code was actually pretty detrimental to the queer community and representation and media because what they wanted was something for a heteronormative society because that's i mean that's what we still have but that's what they wanted at that time they didn't want to if you had any depictions of a gay person there had to be some kind of negative connotation with it Mm -hmm. Um, they were always the villain or they died because of some reason or other or yeah. yeah there's like somebody on youtube i believe that did a video on how basically every single queer character in media 
or at least most of them, had some kind of negative connotation or died in their film. I think you and, showed that to me, actually. Yeah, uh, I think that was, uh, was Rowan, Rowan? Rowan Ellis. Uh, she's got a lot of really good videos on... Actually, I think she runs a podcast about queer media. Yeah, we just found out about her, and yeah. we have been using a lot of her research, a lot of her videos for inspiration for our research, and yeah, yeah and she's the, got really good stuff. And the Hays Code, it was, it was a thing until, I think, up to the 60s, but a lot of the things introduced with the Hays Code are still prevalent in media now, because that's, that's just what you did. Mm-hmm. That's how things are perceived, and even to this day, like, you see all those tropes, like, even in Disney movies, yeah, um, you see Hades and Hercules, or uh, Jafar, Jafar, Ursula, Ursula, yeah, there's a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, there's actually a trope that is, it's an actual trope in film now, that it's the barrier gaze trope. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's, you can't have a queer character without them having some kind of tragic backstory or them dying in the end, whether it's from suicide or from gay bashing or whatever. Um, there's, it's just that, that's a thing yeah. in media, sadly. Well, and actually when we were watching that video about it, I turned to you and kind of was like, well, sadly, a lot of the queer people that I know do have hard lives, hard backstories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it was, uh, that Rowan actually did like research and like there was a percentage of like how many actual queer characters died in media or major films in like the past couple decades and that's just that's not that's not good (laughs) yeah that's great representation and that's that's sad because so many of us did one reason or another picture ourselves not living past a certain age and Speaking from personal experience, now that I'm here, I mean, how many non-binary, queer, polyamorous 30-year-olds do you know in media? I don't really know any. Let, let me, let me, let me know if you do, because I, I need it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Looking out for that. So yeah, I mean, while this was just a code about motion pictures, you would think it would just affect that one industry. No, it, it was affected by, and it continued to affect American culture as a whole. Yeah. So, going into between 1929 and 1939, we had the Great Depression in America, and at this time, men were frequently losing work, and so, because of this, they felt they were losing their masculinity, their ability to be a provider, their ability to care and protect their family, and that gave way to more and more homophobia, Mm -hmm. more and more toxic masculinity, showing your masculinity, quote-unquote, in other ways. Yeah, basically like, oh, you can't get a job, so you're not a man, basically. When at the time, like, there were no jobs. Mm -hmm. Or the jobs that they had were very, very low paying. Okay, so moving on in the 30s, when we're looking at time-scaled evolutionary models being used on modern samples of HIV-1 group M, which was the one responsible for the global pandemic, it shows that this group of the HIV virus originated in humans around 1920 near Kinshasa, which was then part of the Belgian Congo. And so while we didn't know at this time in history that HIV had begun to spread, that's what's happening in the background, just to give everybody an idea. 
Yeah, I don't think we actually knew it was really a thing till around. Yeah, it was much later. But um, they, yeah, I can't they... remember the exact year, but yeah, it was much later that they even realized that AIDS was a thing or HIV was a thing. They recently—I don't know how long ago this was—but they went back and looked at it all, looked at all the the genome or whatever it is that they look at with viruses, and yeah, they traced it back to around like around that time and that specific region. So yeah. it's been around for a while. It has. A hundred years. Over. Yeah. hundred years. Yeah. And at this time, the economic depression that we mentioned was silencing queer culture's place in society mm-hmm. uh, for a number of reasons. The toxic masculinity of men who felt that they were not men anymore because they couldn't provide for their families, but also just the fact that now that things were harder to afford, there weren't as many people that could afford to run gay bars. And, you know, places where they could gather. Oh, yeah. Not only that, it was, I mean, that was the places where they went. And at this time, like, money was so scarce and sparse and just everything was so depressed (laughs) (laughs) because of the Great Depression. I mean, there just wasn't, there wasn't anything Mm -hmm. that people could do about it. Yeah. I mean, they were trying their best to make it work and that wasn't enough. I mean, we can kind of relate. We... Mm-hmm. We were gonna we were gonna make a trip this weekend and unfortunately we were unable to but we were gonna you, normally the trip is sixty dollars in gas it was gonna be over a hundred yeah just because gas prices since the last time we made that trip was what uh, two or three weeks ago it was yeah yeah gas prices have gone up fifty cents mm-hmm. a gallon since then at least and since our relationship began uh, with someone in that city it's gone up at least a dollar yeah at least a dollar. If not more, I'm I believe sure it was like three twenty something when we first started dating. Yeah, them. and now it's like four fifty. Yeah, and that does date this episode, but I don't fucking care because it's ridiculous. It is. It's absolutely terrifying because none of us are getting raises. None of us are, you know, getting any breaks in anything, and everything is going up. Groceries are going up. Rent is going up. Thank God our landlord has not brought that up yet. Mm. Uh, but everything is increasing it is wild how how similar the depression we're experiencing now is to the one back then fortunately we do have a lot more comforts that are baseline for most people yeah a lot more readily available comforts but yes back then they didn't have all the things we had today right they didn't have refrigerators to keep their food cold sometimes because those were they had refrigerators but it was mainly ice boxes but they they were they, I assume, at least, that they were for more wealthy people. Oh, yeah. Like, not the wealthiest, but not someone in the economic level that we are, for example. Yeah, if we our... have fridges, we have AC and heat, you know, stuff mm-hmm. like that. So we are in a more comfortable position, but financially, it's very similar. Yeah, if I remember right, they had ice boxes back then. So mm-hmm. they would get, like, there was an ice truck, and they'd, you'd get a big chunk of ice that you'd put in the bottom of your icebox, and that's what you would use. To keep it all cold. To keep it all cold. So, at this time in the 30s, we have the first Danish transgender woman, uh, Lily Elb. Um, her life was fictionalized in the movie The Danish Girl, which was a really phenomenal movie. I love it. The only downside is that the main actor was not a trans woman. It was a cis man. But, other than that, it was very, very well done. 
artistically well done. They just, they missed the boat on that bit. Yeah. So, Lily Elb was a successful painter under her birth name, Einar Wegner. They were among the first early recipients of sex reassignment surgery. They had top surgery and bottom surgery, and this is the reason for her death. Elb's immune system rejected the transplanted uterus. Actually, I think this was like the first case of a an actual uterus transplant. Yes, and this was not her first surgery. This was, I believe, second from last major, major operation she'd have to undergo mm-hmm. to complete her sex reassignment surgery goals. And unfortunately, that was the one that did lead to her death. It caused a severe infection, and she eventually died from cardiac arrest on September 13th, 1931, um, three months after the surgery. Now, if I, from what the, I've seen the movie, I haven't done too much research on the actual on the actual the actual person, but um, in the movie it showed her going to like an actual clinic um, where they took care of all of this, and she was with there with other women, and the way it was depicted in the movie is they didn't see her as a man mm-hmm. at all; they saw her as a woman. Yes, I believe her doctor was one of the like, top mm-hmm. um, gynecological surgeons. women's health surgeons in the area, and I believe she actually flew to the area to get it. Mm-hmm. Um, I apologize that I didn't do more research here. This is an outrageous project, and we would love to hear if there are people in this that you would like a whole episode biopic on, if we can do that, you know, oh, stuff yes. like that. So please give us feedback there, but be gentle, because this has been a monstrous project. And I'm loving every bit of it, but it is huge. Well, I mean, it's just giving us more stuff to do stuff on. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I just, this is, I feel bad that I can't give every single piece and every single person. There's just so much. So the, the attention that they deserve. But this is the timeline. We are yeah. going through queer history as a timeline. We didn't even really plan to talk as much as we have been of, apart from facts, you know. So... Be gentle. Give us feedback on what you'd like to hear more on. Well, and, and yeah. we haven't even started to cover anything from before the 1600s, which there's not much out there that we have found yet, but I'm sure there's plenty that we can't find. Right. The and problem we will eventually. is that I could kind of, because there's a little more out there for basically America, since America was founded, which is what I started with mm-hmm. because, hi, we're American. Sorry. Um, really, I'm I'm sorry. But yeah, so that's what we've been covering, and we do want to check out other things, but the amount that is out there for this time frame is enough that I can kind of eck out the sus sources a little <laughs> better, and ancient history is just, not even ancient, but you know, pre, pre-American pre history, pre-colonial history, it's just so, there's there's less out there, and so it's harder for me and not being in the field to know which sources might not be the best ones. Yeah. And even still, I saw lots of things. I think we mentioned last episode, there were lots of things that there was one date in this one and another date 20 years later in the other. And they both seemed like decent sources, but I, I did my best. <laughs> so anyway, so going on in 1933, the U.S. prohibition was lifted. And this destroyed the gay scenes that had, at that time, been found underground in, like, speakeasy-type establishments. Since those were spending so much effort on security 
because of the prohibition, they allowed security for people of non-conforming genders who at that time would be arrested if found out. Mm -hmm. And so when it became less profitable for these bar owners and speakeasy owners to continue operating in such secure situations, they either decided to or were kind of forced to, based on life circumstances, change to a more open bar. And at this time, unfortunately, if you wanted to keep your liquor license that you now had since the prohibition was over, you were subject to whatever terms the authorities deemed necessary, which could include refusing service to homosexuals. Yeah. And so if a an authority figure walked into your bar and you were serving people that they deemed to be non-conforming gender, or at that time they really just called them homosexuals because they had no idea that people that were trans were separate from people that were men who loved men and, you know, etc. Anyway, so these authorities could take away their liquor licenses and they would lose their entire livelihood if they served gay people. And so a lot of times bars wouldn't serve gay people or even if they did, they those bars were subject to a lot of raids. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk more later about how that <laughs> that was really an ongoing issue. Yeah. During the Prohibition time, a lot of the bars that were speakeasies, I mean, they were underground. They were run by the mob specifically. Yes. Usually. And, I mean, their main focus was just money, money, money. Mm -hmm. They didn't care who was there. And, I mean, they had to keep it quiet and secret and everything because if they got busted, then everybody's fucked. Right. <laughs> but, like, with the introduction of liquor licenses and everything, like, you had to stick with the law. I mean, mm -hmm. if you violated that law in any way, you can have it revoked and then there's no money for you. So Yeah. The consequences of prohibition lifting were basically that bars no longer found it profitable to serve gay people and serve their needs, yeah. serve the needs of the gay community. So it was a year later. Y'all remember Magnus Hirschfeld, right? The German Jewish scientist in Berlin who did the Institute of Sexual Science. Um, in 1933, on May 6th, students led by Nazi stormtroopers well, broke into the Institute for Sexual Science that was founded by him in Berlin, and they confiscated his library. Which was the only known collection of queer history, queer medical history especially. Yeah. Is, yeah. But four days later, that collection, which consisted of over 12,000 books and 35,000 irreplaceable pictures, were destroyed, along with thousands of other degenerate, in quotes, degenerate works of literature and the burning in Berlin City Center. Now, it's good to note that Hirschfeld was actually out of the country at the time, and he lived the rest of his life in France. So I just want to say couple things. First of all, my partner tagged me in a TikTok today about their type being femme geek, and I just got genuinely emotional. Like, I had to take a few breaths, but like, this breaks my heart so much. Yeah. Because that's over, that's almost 50,000 pieces of irreplaceable media well, about our ancestors, our queer ancestors. Not only was it media, it was research. Yes, yes. It was, it was like actual medical research that was being done. That by media, I literally mean 
paper and pictures and books and yeah no yeah but like a lot of this was research that was being done about gender sexuality all the things that nobody was doing at that time and that resource that all those resources were just destroyed and that was on purpose yeah damn that was so purposeful that was they knew what that was going to do to the queer community worldwide because it it destroyed evidence of progress mm-hmm. and with all of the different so many different governments at this time specifically were so controlling and a lot of people weren't able to do this type of research anymore and if they did it had to be secret yeah and i mean this was led by nazis like one of the most hateful groups out there that want one specific thing and that is basically cishet white couples yeah that's what they want and this was everything that cishet was not cishet white was not speaking of nazi germany during the reign of the nazi regime between 1933 and 1945 nearly 100,000 German homosexual men were rounded up and placed in concentration camps alongside the Jewish people. They were designated by a pink triangle on their clothing, and that is why you will now see the pink triangle as a safe space sticker in a lot of educational and medical offices. I didn't know that. Yes, if you see someone that has a pink triangle on their office window or something like that, it means that they are a safe space for queer people. Yeah. Or they think they are. I mean, the Nazis were, the the whole regime was about making the one master race. Mm -hmm. So it was not just homosexual and Jewish people. It was anybody that was a different race, anybody that was disabled, disabled, any kind of thing that did not fit their, what their ideal of the master race was. That's where you went. And that's just horrible. Yeah. On somewhat of it. I don't really want to say positive note, but in 1939, in World War II, women's roles in society had changed because of the war, because there was so much effort that was needed because of the war, because there was so much fighting and so much destruction and these horrible things happening. Women had to step up. They had to, there were no men at home because all the men had been deployed basically for the war. Mm -hmm. All the women had to step up and they had to go and work. They had to work in the factories. They had to make money somehow or help the war effort the best they could. Right. It was no longer feasible for the control to be had over them where they were just, you know, yeah, staying at home constantly. And staying at home, being a stay-at-home mom or dad or parent or whatever, it is, it's truly a, it's truly a full-time job. And so I'm not hating on that at all. But yeah, it. It released that control because someone had to make money to provide for the family when all the guys were drafted. Someone had to be buying groceries and, you know, taking care of the babies. Yeah. Also during the Nashi regime, queerness was a crime punishable by death. And actually from our military, blue discharges were given to those found to be queer in the military. And they were, I think they were usually dishonorable discharges. Mm-hmm. And they were unable to receive the benefits of being a veteran. So no GI Bill, no nothing like that. I believe they were almost seen as worse than dishonorable discharges from what mm-hmm. I kind of read. Yeah. In 1941, the bombing of Pearl Harbor occurred. Following the bombing of Pearl Harbor, all U.S. citizens participated in the war effort 
and enlistments occurred at the rate of 14,000 per day in 1942. Gay and lesbian people were also joining the military. Men in military living in same-sex dorms. Women were also in same-sex dorms, either in waves, the women accepted for volunteer emergency service, and also in factories on the home front. They also had to either work in the same-sex settings or live in same-sex settings when they had to move in together to be able to afford things better or both. In addition, men who fought in Europe saw during their leave time that same-sex relationships were way more relaxed in Europe than in the U.S., and they took a liking to this and wanted to bring this back when they came back to the United States. I believe the war ended around 1942. can't remember the actual date, but war ended. So at this time, around 1945, uh, German homosexual men that were designated by the Pink Triangle on their clothing were actually the last group to be released from the Nazi concentration camps after the liberation by the Allied forces. Because paragraph 175 of the German Criminal Code stated that homosexual relations between males is still illegal. Mm-hmm. Which is very sad. Very sad. So they were considered criminals still and held in Nazi concentration camps or in prisons after the Allied forces. Three years after the war ended. Yeah. And it took a while for them to go and liberate all of the concentration camps because there were so many. Yes. And, like, they were still being protected by the German soldiers. Mm-hmm. Around this time in Russia, homosexuality was still a crime as well. It was equated with pedophilia and fascism. Basically, any challenge to the status quo, any challenge to the way the government had things going, became the enemy. Also at this time, in the U.S., we have what was called the White Flight, which was affluent citizens, predominantly white citizens, were moving to the suburbs to escape the marginalized groups, such as queer, black, and other race communities um non-white cishet etc basically they were trying to escape those marginalized groups basically white people were moving away from the city where all the all the other people were (laughs) yeah and i mean those marginalized groups were themselves escaping their own woes like black people escaping the segregation of the south Mm -hmm. so this was mostly because the nuclear family was held in very high regard at this time Basically, any, again, any challenge to the status quo became the enemy. Mm-hmm. And that included anyone that wasn't white, cis, and het. Yeah, and so all the white people, all the white, cis, het people moved out to the suburbs. Yep. In 1948, the Kinsey Report by Alfred Kinsey, American biologist and sexologist at Indiana University, was released. It was called Sexual Behavior of the Human Male. This was truly the first publication to be open about homosexuality. It claimed that 10% of the population was gay, and it planted seeds of awareness and acceptance of queer people. The affluent society continued to fight to keep things the way they were, as they do. But this was something positive for the queer community, finally. Mm -hmm. Shortly after this, we have the Lavender Scare. This took place during Joseph McCarthy's time when communism was really prevalent and sought out during the Red Scare. We call it the Lavender Scare because they singled out queer people. McCarthy called everybody communist. He was using the Red Scare to feed this new queer fear known as the Lavender Scare. Hundreds of people were fired from government employment due to their perceived sexuality, 
and Joseph McCarthy seemed to seek out the homosexuals in the government obsessively, despite the effect it had on the public. This spurred more fear and aggression toward an already marginalized and vulnerable group of people. And actually, McCarthy wasn't interested in the fact that they were homosexual. He was mainly calling them out because since the government didn't weed out the homosexuals to begin with, he was basically saying, like, well, if you can let these homosexuals in, then who knows how many communists you have working for you. Right, exactly. Basically. And he was he basically called them undesirables. Mm-hmm. And he called for homosexuals to be removed from government employment, but did not dedicate the time and effort he did to the Red Scare. Yeah, so basically he worked harder on the Red Scare. He was more fervently anti-communist, but he also considered homosexuals and queer people to be communist because anyone that was his enemy was a communist. Yeah. Damn commies. On May 17th of 1954, Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka made segregation in public schools illegal. Yay. All nine Supreme Court justices ruled that segregation in public schools based on race violated the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. Yeah. This was the very, very beginning of a still, unfortunately, not entirely equal playing field, but it's better than it was. No, but this was like a very, very big step in civil rights and how we treat other people as equals. Mm -hmm. And I mean, despite that going on, there was still a lot of a lot of people didn't like this decision, of course. Right. And a lot of people still don't like that decision. So, yeah, it's it's still a problem, but it was a big step. <laughs> so, around this time, a queer African-American blues singer known as Big Mama Thornton was becoming more popular, was coming in, was rising into fame. She was born in Alabama as Willie Mae Thornton in 1926 to a Baptist minister father and a choir singer mother. Sometime between 12 and 14 years old, when her mom passed away, Willie Mae left home with Diamond Teeth Mary, one of the most famous gospel performers of the age, and joined Sammy Green's Hot Harlem Review, where she would sing, dance, play instruments like drums and harmonica, and even tell jokes on stage. Growing up, her mom did train her a lot in voice and singing, because that was her passion, but... From what I understand, she taught herself to play drums and harmonicas and to dance and to perform because performing in this kind of performance group is an entirely different deal than performing in a gospel choir. Mm -hmm. A lot of her idols growing up were Bessie Smith and Memphis Minnie, and she proudly carried the torch for African-American women everywhere. And she shared her own struggles as well with those of the community at large with her raw, powerful, deep music very soulful like blue i mean blues in itself is just very soulful but she brought a whole new element to it mm-hmm. being from a marginalized community and like bringing her soul into the music itself yeah in 1951 she released i think it was her biggest hit which was hound dog which actually predates elvis so she was the one who originally came up with that song mm-hmm. not elvis and like if you listen to it it's pretty it much is, the same song. It's so much better, though. It is. <laughs> it's like the difference between a gospel choir singing Go Tell It on the Mountain 
and a group of kindergartners in music class singing Go Tell Love in the Mountain. Oh, yeah. I mean, that old school blues, like the first blues singers, they literally poured their heart and soul into that music. You can feel that music. You really can. Yeah. And one of the things she had was she had this kind of growl in her voice that became more of an iconic, basically iconic thing that represented who she was. Mm -hmm. And she sang from the heart and expressed herself as best she could. (laughs) It's funny because a lot of her producers and a lot of people around her that were telling her basically how to be successful told her that you, you shouldn't. You shouldn't be growling. You shouldn't sound this masculine. You shouldn't dress and act and sing like that. You need to be more feminine. And she didn't care. No, she did not. She mainly wore traditionally masculine clothes, and but she kept it kind of flashy with golden glitter. Mm-hmm. I think she also um, she had like gold teeth. She as did well. have a, at least one gold tooth, and it was like one of her very front teeth was yeah. gold. <laughs> but she was also known as Lady Bear. Probably because of that growl and just the presence she had. Mm -hmm. Though her success was unfortunately capped at a certain point due to the status of women and African-American people in the U.S. at this time, not to mention queer people, Elvis took her track Hound Dog and turned it into an absolute hit. She was once again robbed when Baytone Records, her record company, took her unreleased song Ball and Chain and had Janis Joplin record it causing Thornton to lose any chance at royalties or fame from the track. Joplin had sought out and received Thornton's blessing, and Big Mama Thornton did open for Janice a few times in live concerts. But unfortunately, that just doesn't really make up for the fact that that was robbed from not only Big Mama Thornton, but from the queer and African-American communities. Yeah, I'm sure that record company manipulated the contract or whatever they had set up in some way where there was, it was in the fine print, like this isn't technically your song or something. Mm -hmm. And that was probably done because she was a black woman. I mean, at that point, what, what choice do you have if you're part of a marginalized group? And at this point, it was a miracle to be able to get a record deal. And so Mm -hmm. you just sign on the dotted line. Oh, yeah. So... Unfortunately, at the age of 57 years old, on July 25th, 1984, Willie Mae Thornton passed away due to complications from a heart attack. From what I understand, she had fallen deep into alcoholism after her fame dissipated, mostly because I think she didn't quite get to do what she wanted to do. She had an incredible impact, but she, I think she wanted to do more or she didn't see how much of an impact she had. And that's sad. All right, so moving on to the next decade, the 1950s. So in the 1950s, we have the Beat Generation, the Beatniks. These were people that were not the norm. They were outside of the norm. They saw the power of the individual and sought out worldly pleasures. And this group of people being this open and more exploratory type of people, um, this group, the Beatniks, they attracted more of the LGBT plus community, and it was a place where they could go, where they could feel like themselves and be themselves, mm-hmm. and not have the judgment of anything. Yeah, and people of this movement started moving to Greenwich Village. Yeah. That's in San Francisco, California, and this became kind of a queer utopia. There were a lot of poets and writers and artists 
that were pushing for change. At this time, the Black Cat Tavern was a haven for LGBTQ plus people. Police raids were definitely the norm, and the Black Cat Tavern did win the right to stay open, but had to ban physical contact between people. So shitty. Yeah. I mean, it sucks that you had to fight to stay open. Yeah. But it's great that they did stay open, despite having that rule against physical contact. Mm-hmm. But the fact that there was a place they could go where they had their community and they can go and talk and converse and be with each other and be themselves was amazing. Absolutely. At this time, another popular LGBTQ plus space called Cooper's Donuts. It was actually a bar. It was especially a space for transgender and gender nonconforming people. And when they were raided, specifically the trans women fought back really strong. Unfortunately, I couldn't find a whole lot more about this, but it was just noted that, you know, the trans women in this bar during these raids were the protectors. They were standing in the front lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were at the forefront of that movement. And um, we'll see that again later, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, all through history. Yes. In 1950, the U.S. Congress issued a report entitled Employment of Homosexuals and Other Sex Perverts in Government. It was distributed to members of Congress after the federal government had covertly investigated employees' sexual orientation. The report states specifically that since homosexuality is a mental illness, homosexuals, quote, constitute security risks to the nation. Mm, That's not okay. (laughs) Yeah. In 1950, or in the 1950s, we have Harry Hay, his lover, actor Will Gear, who gained fame in the 1970s in the role of Grandpa Walton on the very popular television series The Waltons, recruited Harry Hay to the Communist Party. Together, they performed street theater meant to incite people to protest against Jim Crow, anti-Semitism, and other societal ills, and they demonstrated for the right to unionize. In 1950, Harry Hay started the Mattachine Society, one of the earliest LGBT groups. Their activism consisted of peaceful protests, and it was mainly made up of conservative gay white men whose main goal was assimilation into society. They didn't really pay attention to any intersectional groups because they just wanted to be treated like any other conservative white man in America, just be allowed to have man-on-man relationships. In 1953, Hay and the other leaders of the Mattachine Society were ousted in part because of his communist affiliation. This was deemed a liability by an insurgent group of more conservative members of the organization. In 1966, he co-founded the North American Conference of Homophile Organizations, or NACHO. Nice. Yay. In 1979, he and his partner from 1963 till his deathbed in 2002 John Burnside, founded the Radical Fairies. This was a, quote, mixture of a political alternative, a counterculture, and a spirituality movement. This was an anti-assimilationist group, which drew inspiration from Marxism, paganism, anarchism, and Native American spirituality. Nice. I want to be a radical fairy. Yeah. Sounds good to me. Right? Moving on, we have Christine Jorgensen. She was one of the first trans public figures in the U.S. She served in the U.S. Army during and after World War II, and she feared being exposed or labeled as a homosexual. 
which could get a soldier prison time and a dishonorable discharge or court-martial. One book called The Male Hormone piqued her interest and helped explain her problems, which led her to start taking estrogen. She consulted with doctors and surgeons in Europe who had already performed sex reassignment surgery. In 1950, she traveled to Denmark to pursue her dreams of transitioning medically. For the next two years, Jorgensen underwent hormone treatment, psychiatric evaluations, and finally surgery to remove her male genitalia. She would not receive a vaginoplasty until years later back in the U.S. Inspired by her doctor, Christian Hamburger, she changed her name to Christine to honor him. Her story reached the newspapers, and on December 1, 1952, she made the front page of the New York Daily News under the headline, XGI Becomes Blonde Beauty, Operations Transform Bronx Youth. She used her status to speak about trans issues. Six months after the media released her story, reporters reached out to the surgeons who had transformed Jorgensen on the steps that happened in the surgery. The surgeons, unfortunately, released information that although Jorgensen removed her male genitalia, she didn't have a vagina. Before this incident, the press, the press assumed Christine had a vagina. Her former supporters at this point felt betrayed at the discovery and claimed that she couldn't be a woman without ovaries and other women's reproductive organs. The media soon shunned her, and according to author David Serlin, they exposed her as a, quote, altered male, and later, a, quote, morbid transvestite. Not only because of this attention, but also just because of dysphoria, Christine felt incomplete without a vagina, until the day finally came in May 1954, when she underwent a vaginoplasty performed by Dr. Joseph Angelo and Dr. Harry Benjamin. After this, Jorgensen pursued her dreams of becoming an entertainer, performing in nightclubs, but she never really made it big in Hollywood, which was her ultimate dream. At one point, she was denied a marriage license because her birth certificate identified her as male. Her fiancé once lost their job when their engagement got out. In 1967, Christine wrote an autobiography titled Christine Jorgensen, a personal autobiography. Jorgensen went on to use her story to lecture at colleges across the U.S. on gender identity, and in 1970, Hollywood created a film based on her life called The Christine Jorgensen Story. On May 3, 1989, she unfortunately passed away from a bladder and lung cancer, but her story will not be forgotten. In 1952, U.S. Congress passed and President Harry S. Truman signed into law the Immigration Act that barred, quote, aliens afflicted with a psychopathic personality, epilepsy, or mental defect, quote. Congress made this clear that this was meant to exclude, quote, homosexuals and sex perverts. Alan Turing was a highly respected mathematician and codebreaker whose contributions to data science and artificial intelligence are still seen today. Mm -hmm. Alan never denied who he was and instead lived openly as a gay man at a time when it was legal. He was convicted for indecency and arrested in 1952. Turing received a posthumous pardon in 2013 for this charge, along with thousands of other gay and bisexual men in 2016 under the Alan Turing Law. And while a nice gesture, that doesn't undo the harm it caused. On June 23, 2021, 109 years after he was born, 
The fifty-pound banknote with Alan Turing's face were issued for the first time in the UK. Yes, I didn't know that. I'd like to point out that Alan Turing made the Turing test, which is what we use today to test if AI, artificial intelligence, is basically has surpassed human intelligence. Mm-hmm. And so far, as far as I know, no AI has passed the test. Yes, he definitely had a lot of influence in the world of artificial intelligence. Yes. Which, back in the 1950s, that's that's some pretty revolutionary shit. <laughs> yeah. Alright, moving on, we have Louise Lawrence. Louise was denied her childhood, yearning to be a girl, and married Virginia at 18 years old in 1930. The couple had a daughter before Virginia passed away in 1935. At this point, she began to socialize with other, quote, transvestites and cross-dressers. She married Montez, who seemed to accept her cross-dressing, in 1941. But the stress she felt, keeping her truth a secret, led to mental health issues, and they divorced in 1944. At this time, she began living full-time as a woman in Berkeley, California, and later in San Francisco. She helped sexologist Alfred Kinsey find and gain the trust of more trans people to talk to, furthering his research and eagerness to understand them better. He also paid her to type their life stories, as well as copies of transvestite fiction. In 1952, along with Virginia Prince, Edith Ferguson, and Joan Thornton, they published the first issue of Transvestia in 1952. When discussing, quote, who is a transvestite, the group said it included, quote, heterosexuals, there are definite fetishists, sadists, masochists, voyeurs, homosexuals, etc. They include everyone, basically. Right. Later, she was quoted on her own gender, saying, I consider Louise to be my true identity, even though the birth records say differently. And on this, I will stand. For to me, as to most people who know me, I am Louise. I maintain that people are personalities first, and that the statistical facts are merely additional information. I really liked that quote when I found it. Yeah, that's great. That's that's pretty much how I see it today. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's how it should be. <laughs> in 1953, the Kinsey Report on Sexual Behavior in the Human Female was published, which discussed female homosexuality. And also in 1953, Eisenhower's Executive Order 10450, which barred queer people from working for government agencies, occurred. The Lavender Scare became a kind of witch hunt as the federal government used abusive tactics to discover and root out gay people. Some 10,000 civil servants would lose their jobs. At this time, queer people were described as perverts and sexual deviants. And while it's true that some of us might be, that's not all of us, and that's not why we're that way. Our queerness has nothing to do with our perversion. Yeah. A 1955 film entitled Boys Beware was shown in high schools, and this warned young boys of homosexual predators who would try to take advantage of their unsuspecting innocence. Eisenhower's order stays in place until 1993, when President Bill Clinton and the U.S. Congress enact the Don't Ask, Don't Tell law, which, while better than the executive order Eisenhower listed, not great. No, oh, that's almost 40 years. And then we have Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which yeah. is which is not. No. It's not the thing. It's not it, guys. Not okay. In 1954, we have the Supreme Court decision, Hernandez versus Texas. This unanimous decision declared that Mexican-Americans 
and other nationalities had equal protection under the 14th Amendment. Up to this time, non-white people were systematically excluded from serving on court juries. In 1955, the Daughters of Belitis were founded, and this was the first lesbian rights organization founded in San Francisco by Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon, both journalists. With the Daughters of Belitis, Del and Phyllis would begin publishing the lesbian magazine The Latter. The name Daughters of Belitis refers to the Songs of Belitis, a collection of verse by the poet Pierre Louis, who imagined a character, Belitis, living alongside Sappho on the Isle of Lesbos. It is pronounced Belitis because Belitis sounded like a disease, according to Lyon. Can't disagree. The name Belitis served as a kind of dog whistle, inviting lesbians to join Daughters of Belitis, while still maintaining their safety as much as possible. They hosted private social functions, fearing police raids, threats of violence, and discrimination in bars and clubs. In 1967, Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon became the first lesbian couple to take advantage of the National Organization for Women's Couples Discount, offered to heterosexual women who invited their husbands to join the group. Martin eventually became the first out lesbian on NOW's national board. Marcia M. Gallo, a historian of the Daughters of Belitis and of lesbian history, recalls her first encounter with the couple. When I first went in to do an interview, I asked, did you know that when you started this, you were going to change the world? And they were like, oh no, we just wanted to have fun. In 1979, Martin wrote Battered Wives, one of the first books to raise awareness of women caught in abusive relationships and to offer legislative solutions. She used social, legal, and historical lenses to demonstrate how societal power imbalances and marriage as an institution created the conditions for domestic abuse. Martin once said, I didn't want to be a single-issue feminist, and I thought this issue would pull us all together. On February 13, 2003, Martin and Lyon celebrated their 50th anniversary together with the release of a documentary about their lives. When Martin and Lyon were officially married, June 16, 2008, they wore the same bright blue and soft purple pantsuits in which they were wed four years earlier. Only two short months after their second marriage, Martin passed away from complications following an arm bone fracture. After their 55 years together and two months of legal marriage, Lyon said, I am devastated, but I take some solace in knowing we were able to enjoy the ultimate right of love and commitment before she passed. Gaio remembers her final years. Gaio remembers Lyon's final years, saying she had a cadre of young queer people lesbian to bi to trans to non-binary, who cared for her daily. At 95 years old, on April 9, 2020, Lyon died of natural causes. James Dean was also a prominent actor at this time. He was very well known, born in Indiana in 1931. He lived in California with his mother from 1937 to 1940, when his mother passed away. He was raised Quaker in a rural town and was the typical man's man. He did the sports, drama, and debate, with several state titles. Uh, when he graduated high school in 1949, he moved to L.A. with the intention of attending Santa Monica City College for pre-law. <laughs> I did not know that. When his pre-law classes proved to be more difficult for him to absorb than he thought, he decided to turn his focus towards his talent for acting and transferred to the University of California, Los Angeles. 
He acted in a few Broadway productions, including Jaguar in 1952, starred in movies Hill No. 1, 1951, East of Eden, 1955, Rebel Without a Cause, 1955, and lastly, Giant, 1956, with Elizabeth Taylor and Rock Hudson. To congratulate himself on his new stardom, Dean bought himself a porch, a Porsche, which he wanted to enter into a race in Santa Monica. On September 30th, 1955, James Dean died in a head-on collision at the age of 24. Posthumously, Rebel Without a Cause and Giant were released. He earned an Oscar nomination for Best Performance in East of Eden, also won the Japanese Million Pearl Award, and the French Crystal Star Award. James Dean's sexuality was consistently called into question in his short debut in Hollywood, with his affairs being rumored to be with legends such as Marilyn Monroe, Marlon Brando and Rock Hudson. Real quick, can you can you imagine a fivesome with James Dean, Marilyn Monroe, Marlon Brando, and Rock Hudson? Damn. Just like thinking about that. <sighs> Rock Hudson is fucking hot. I know. So is Marilyn Monroe and yeah. Marlon Brando and oh, James yeah. Dean. <laughs> but yeah, all sex symbols. Yeah. There's a quote of him saying. No, I'm not homosexual, but I am also not going through life with one hand tied behind my back. Which has been decided is a nod to his bisexuality. So he never officially came out and said he was bisexual. I'm not even sure that they were really using that widely at that time or anything, so... No, I doubt it. But, like, he only lived to be 24. Right. So, who knows? I, like, I didn't even know exactly... Yeah, no, I had no clue that he had any kind of connotations of anything other than cis, cis head, mm. to be honest. Um, but yeah, since he didn't live very long, I actually didn't realize his career was that short. Right. Yeah. He blew up really fast and then, oh God, that's then bad. Then he blew that's, up really fast. <laughs> that's bad, daddy. I opened it up and it's bad. <laughs> oh, terrible. There's actually a rumor that his, his the Porsche he bought was haunted. Oh, and that's, yeah, that's, I have heard that. There's actually a supernatural <laughs> supernatural episode about it. Oh, yeah, there is. Yeah. James Bolden was a gay civil rights activist. He was born in Harlem in 1924 to a single mother. When he was three, his mother married David Baldwin, a Baptist minister, who he would from then on call his father. He became a youth minister at 14 years old at Harlem Pentecostal Church following in his father's footsteps. Though he loved reading and writing and desperately wanted to attend college, he put his dreams on hold, taking whatever work he could get to support his family, including seven younger siblings. Mm. Because of his desperation to support his family, he took whatever jobs he could get, and these were often laborious, such as railroad laying in New Jersey, where he was often kicked out of bars, restaurants, etc., simply for being African-American. On July 29, 1943, James's eighth sibling was born, and unfortunately the same day, David Baldwin, his father, passed away. Shortly after, he moved to Greenwich Village and began pouring himself into writing a novel, taking odd jobs to support himself, until he received a fellowship through his friend Richard Wright in 1945. In 1948, he moved to Paris following another fellowship, which allowed him to write more freely about his personal experiences. He's quoted as saying, Once I found myself on the other side of the ocean, I see where I came from very clearly. 
I am the grandson of a slave, and I am a writer. I must deal with both. He is also quoted as saying that his personal mission was to, quote, bear witness to the truth, which he shared with the world through his writings. In 1953, with his novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain, it was a profound insight on race, spirituality, and humanity for this time. It's a loosely autobiographical story, which spoke of the experiences James had in Harlem growing up with a religious father. It pointed out white supremacy and activism, and was recognized for his writings on the black experience in America. In 1956, he wrote another novel entitled Giovanni's Room, which was a novel about an American man who lived in Paris and was firstly a human with personhood and secondarily a gay man in a complex way that had not been yet explored much in in this era of literature. Yeah, so basically he was one of the first people in this era of literature to start writing about gay people as more than just gay people, as people with entire experiences and personhood and interests that have nothing to do with their sexuality. Not only that, but he also also touched on the subjects of spirituality and growing up the racial prejudice, being a black man, and Mm -hmm. including all that, which was not very prominent. I wouldn't think in that time. So with that being said, we have completed what we've got for (laughs) up to 1960. Yeah. 30 years. Covered 30 years today. Yep. So in our next episode, we will start at the 60s and see how far we get and Mm -hmm. continue to cover queer history. Yeah. And if any of those few people that we talked about... um, kind of singled them out because they were more prominent figures at the time if any of those you want us to do more episodes about or or anyone in queer history yeah anyone that you know of or kink history history, yeah um please let us know you can reach out to us at any of our social medias may take a minute but we might we'll respond to you so no usually usually i get them and yeah answer back pretty quick so yeah send us any suggestions you have for what else we should cover what from this or from queer history, kink history, should we expand on? Mm-hmm. We are probably going to try to finish up this outline, this timeline, before we move on to like a biopic or something like that. I know coming up in the next couple of weeks, we are going to have a special guest on. Yes. We're going to have Magic, mm-hmm. who is a good friend of ours and has worked and studied at the Chicago Leather Museum when they were getting their master's in Chicago. There is a wealth of knowledge in that wonderful person's brain, and I can't wait to explore it. Yes, they are also a sex worker as well, and have done lots of things professionally, I've heard. Yeah, and they are, last I knew, they were currently going through a move that was uh, financially devastating for them, and so we are going to provide, um, given their blessing, I'm sure they will give their blessing, but we are going to provide not only their socials, but like their cash app or their PayPal, whatever they can, however they can get paid. Yeah. And if you guys can maybe save up a few dollars to tip them when we do that episode, that would be amazing. We unfortunately don't have the funds to pay our wonderful podcast guests, but if you guys could help us out with just a few dollars here and there for this special guest, that would be amazing. Yeah. And now, Daddy, without further ado, internally screaming. Uh, externally screaming. <laughs> yes, I will.
Not really much of a joke, though. It's more of a riddle. Okay. It is pretty bad. It's always bad. So, riddle me this. What hangs at a man's thigh and wants to poke the hole that it's often poked before? I don't know what. It, it, it's a key. <laughs>